Welcome to Sound Philosophy, a podcast exploring philosophical and interpretive issues in the history of popular music. Today, we continue last episode's exploration of the sublime in hip-hop, but now applying the notion to other subgenres of hip-hop, including the work of Houston 90s mixtape artist DJ Screw and Cloud Rap. Thank you for joining me. Enjoy. episode, I discussed the notion of the hip-hop sublime as presented by musicologist Adam Crims. He defined, if you recall, the hip-hop sublime as characteristic of gangster rap, in particular, and hardcore reality rap more broadly, and claimed that it primarily consisted of bringing layers of samples together in such a way that the tunings of the various samples were misaligned, they were out of tune, and therefore created a kind of dissonance that was not coded as rational by the typical understanding of Western musical space. Now, what I mean by that is it wasn't a typically measurable dissonance within that system, as would be, say, a minor second between C and C sharp, or what have you, right? What we're talking about are these minor gradations of misalignment in tuning. So we register it as a dissonance, but not as a recognizable dissonance. It's off-putting, in one sense, and yet, especially because uh, so many um, hip-hop productions, the, the beats simply loop, it's a kind of permanent disturbance within the song. It's something that we recognize as dissonant and yet have to accept as stable, or as least as stable as it gets. For Crims, this pushed the representational capacity of the music beyond what it could normally or normatively accomplish. Now, Crims was trained as a music theorist, ultimately, even if he was genuinely and deeply concerned with rap's, quote, socializing effects, end quote, as well as its economic and cultural implications. That means in his work, he attempted to approach something about the music's sounding presence and how that sounding material works upon the social, the economic, and the cultural. He was of that generation of theorists suspicious of the term, quote, the music itself, end quote. Because there is no music aside from the social and cultural, and indeed the economic. And yet, he still didn't want to accept the notion that the material basis of sound is immaterial to the functioning of music. In other words, he didn't want to suggest or accept that just any sounds would do. And some people believe this, certain sociologists and so on, seem to be less interested in the sounding presence of music. They're more interested in the paraphernalia around that sounding presence and feel that that's really what we're engaging in when we're engaging with music. The, the fashion, the notoriety, the way that it, it helps to um, create identities, and that we're less interested in the music itself. But of course, a music theorist, even if they're suspicious of the notion of the music itself, they're not going to dismiss it altogether, and certainly Crims doesn't. Now, in defining the hip-hop sublime, this desire to say something about the music itself, I think, led Crims into an interesting impasse with respect to at least the Kantian version of the sublime, but I would argue really with any viable understanding of the sublime. Because for Crims, 
The sublime is really an adjective that describes objects, musical objects, in this case, hardcore rap beats. A certain track is simply said to be sublime, owing to the technique of compiling its constituent layers. That is, by placing them together in such a way that their tunings conflict and are allowed to conflict and remain conflicting. And this conflicting set of pitches then has a direct representational impact, according to Krems. It represents the internally contradictory nature of the ghetto and its place in post-industrial capitalism, a place of libidinous desire and investment with respect to musical culture uh, within a space of neglect and disinvestment with respect to lived geography and the economic and social status of its largely black and brown residents. Thus, through the machinations of the hardcore rap artists on the one hand and the culture industry run by the music corporations, in this case, on the other, a surplus value, Krim says, arises within a space that utterly lacks value. So in the normal economic run of things, the ghetto is a place of disinvestment. It's a place where people don't want to put their money. It's not a place uh, that... that we expect to get value out of. But in the cultural sense, when it comes to certain movies and certain forms of music like gangster rap, it's a place of surplus value. It's a place that creates value. That by depicting the ghetto in various ways, this will entice people to buy it. And so it creates value in a place that had lacked value. The unreal world of entertainment, therefore, creates value and a locus of desire out of a location shunned within the real world. And indeed, the logic of surplus value here relies upon this seeming contradiction. It's the fact that we normally shun the ghetto or, or that the, the common run of people are fearful of or don't want to be involved in the ghetto, certainly don't want to invest their money, that they invest their time in it, right? Won't invest their money, but will invest their time, their entertainment time. The ghetto is deemed in this process, more authentic and more desirable, specifically because it is a space closed off to the realities of the great majority of hardcore rap's listeners, who are, by this argument at least, white suburban male teens. Now, most people in the suburbs could never experience this form of the ghetto for at least two reasons. First, because if they had wandered into the ghetto by some circumstance, they would obviously be treated as outsiders and so would lack the insiderness articulated by hardcore rap, that comfort within the ghetto, that comfort within, in the midst of danger. But second, and I guess more importantly, the reason that, that they're not going to experience this is because it doesn't exist. This version of the ghetto really doesn't exist. It's a fiction created by a confluence of spheres of interest. And I laid this out in the previous episode. The, the spheres included the interest of the artists, right? The interest of the record companies or the culture industry at large, the interest of the audience, the interests of the politicians and journalists who made gangster rap a daily topic of concern in the 90s to a wider public, largely as a goad to panic over the vexed issues of violence, poverty, law and order, murder, and of course, race. Panic sells newspapers. But this flies in the face of something stipulated very clearly by Kant, but also ultimately central to Burke's notion, Edmund Burke. Remember, we talked last time about at least three philosophers who discussed the sublime. We talked about Edmund Burke, Immanuel Kant, and then uh, Jean-Francois Lyotard. 
and uh, I'm saying that, that for all three, really, uh, there's something important about the sublime that's lost when we say that the sublime is an adjective that can be applied to an object. Because for all three of them, for Burke, for Kant, for Leotard, there is no sublime object. There are no criteria by which we can say that that thing over there is sublime. Even if it's a tornado, remember we use the tornado as a, a primary example of the sublime, that the tornado, you get, you want to be close enough to it that you're not in danger of dying, but, but um, or you want to be far enough away from it that you're not in danger of dying, but close enough that you feel its awesome power, and that the tornado is a good example of, of the sublime, but it's not really the tornado. Because when I watch the tornado from, the distant, from a, a, a large distance, I don't experience it as sublime. And if I'm too close to it, where it really is in, in threatening my life, I don't experience it as sublime. I experience terror, right? The sublime is not in an object. The sublime is in the experience, right? The tornado is not always sublime. Too close, it's deadly. Too far away, and you get a sense of its form and its boundaries. And remember that the whole point of the sublime is that you don't experience form or boundaries, that it seems immense beyond boundary and beyond form. beyond Because form is a way of gathering purchase on something, of getting some kind of cognitive control over it. And the idea of the sublime is that it pushes us past our limits. So it is without boundaries and pushes us beyond our own boundaries. So what we ought to be talking about here, really, are the socializing effects that arise from an engagement with the object, an experience of the object that tells us more about our dispositions, our way of relating, than it truly does about the object itself. By focusing so much on technique as exclusively definitional of the sublime, Krim seems to have lost sight of this integral aspect of the sublime as experience, which is in the end all that it is. So we want to then think about not just this idea that, that sublime is about experience, but remember that in Burke, and it seems like in Kant, the, the, the main goal here, the main, the main um, mission statement is that the sublime involves a kind of terror that transmutes into pleasure. But is it always terror? Or what is the nature of, of that terror here? And I think that one way to approach this that there might be other qualities to the sublime is what I'm ultimately suggesting. And I think one way to approach this is by looking at the end of Burke's book on the sublime, right? Where he turns to language and he claims that poetic language is perhaps the most uh, intense experience of the sublime. Now, this seems to fly in the face of everything he'd said so far, right? We're not terrified even when we read about terrifying things. In, especially in fiction or in poetry, we're not terrified in, in any real way, right? Now, what he says, he's talking about Milton's prose, right? Paradise Lost, where Milton describes hell and Satan and so on. And he says that in engaging with Milton's prose, this is Burke says, quote, the mind of the reader is hurried out of itself by a crowd of great and confused images, which affect because they are crowded and confused. So for separate them and you lose much of the greatness and join them and you infallibly lose the clearness. 
the images raised by poetry are always of this obscure kind, end quote. So notice some key words there, right? That the mind is hurried out of itself. So we're rushing in our thoughts in some fashion. Out of itself, out of our normal boundaries. By a crowd of great and confused images, things we can't quite pin down. And they affect us for that reason, because they're crowded and confused. And if you separate them out, you lose the greatness. And if you join them, you lose the clearness. I'm going to come back to that. Um, the images are always of this obscure kind in poetry, he says. Right? Notice the reference to obscurity. He finds a lot of, of the sublime within this, this issue of obscurity. Now think about the image of language presented here. Poetic language in Burke's terms, but really language at large, I would argue. We operate in the world with the assumption that language is more or less concrete. Someone says something and we, quote, take them at their word, end quote. Well, what's implied in that phrase? That their word is something solid, something we can take them at. Their word becomes not just the communicator of their intent, but also the embodiment of that intent. The message in language is the thing, so to speak. We invest words with a kind of determinate presence, meaning that they define intention and that they underwrite meaning by being uttered, by being sounding the sounding articulation of the presence of the speaker. I know you mean what you say, or I think I know, in part because I'm here with you saying it. So there is, of course, the mediation of language. I'm hearing what you mean through your use of words. Your meaning is tempered by our shared language, our shared dialect, and your choice of words and my understanding of what those words convey. But there's also the alluring sense of immediacy here in that you're saying these words to me. You're speaking directly to me. And when you're really speaking to me, I see you navigate your way through language. I'm watching you feel it out. I'm watching you test ways of saying what you want to say. And you're watching me for the impact of your words, gauging their effect, and then altering your discourse accordingly. We are together. When you were really talking to each other, we are together in an act of mutually negotiating meaning, of navigating the sea of possibility within language. And that has an element of immediacy to it, even if it is not, strictly speaking, outside of mediation. It is mediated. We're using language to mediate our thoughts, but we're going to come back to that in a moment. Your presence, then, elides the direct awareness of our distance across language. Because I'm here in a room with you and we're speaking together, it doesn't feel like we're divided by language, right? We feel like we're communicating. Your presence mediates the mediation of language and makes it feel immediate. Now, other forms of that presence can be vitiated, of course. They can be weakened through distance, but I still expect a kind of abiding presence in your words. This happens with the written word, right? I mean, we write emails all the time. Doubt can enter in because you aren't here saying it. How can I know I understand what you mean when the mediation of the written word enters in? And this happens all the time. When a text comes through, we're not quite sure what's being meant. We're not sure if it's sarcasm. Sarcasm is very hard to read in emails, as we know, right? But what happens when you write me an email or a letter? You sign it, right? You underwrite the message with your imprimatur, so to speak, your signature. Of course, your signature is in one sense just another set of words, but they are words that seem like not words, that seem like something more. They seem like they, they're a hint 
of your presence. So we treat words, and perhaps have to treat words, as though they're relatively concrete and reliable. And when we feel they're not, what do we do? We ask the person speaking, hey, what do you mean precisely? What are you trying to say? Well, what does that suggest? It suggests that there must be, behind your obscure words, some more precise words that you could have used. And now I'm asking you to use them. More precise, concrete words that would clarify the obscurity of what you originally said. But then I might ask, wait, I still don't get it. What do you mean? And you try again and again. And maybe you have that experience that I often have when this happens. Your own experience of your own meaning becomes obfuscated. You start to ask yourself, wait a minute, what exactly do I mean? What does this thing I'm trying to convey mean, really? And you realize that the edifice of precision that we think language is turns out to be anything but that. Language is quicksand that pretends to be concrete. So as Burke puts it, you have this, quote, crowd of great and confused images in Milton, and your instinct is to separate them out, to define each of them. Let's take each image and we'll define it. We'll figure out what it means. And then we'll put them back together and we'll see what all of it means together. But Burke says you can't do that because to do that is precisely to lose the clarity, not gain more clarity, but to lose it. And that's interesting to me, that if we do what we normally do in analysis, separate things out and then put them back together and see how they all work, right? Taking the engine apart to see all of its parts and then putting it back together. That what Burke is saying is that that won't work with language, at least not with poetic language, right? That instead we'll lose clarity, that part of the clarity comes from obscurity. And that's weird to think about, right? Now, Burke says he's just talking about poetry, but I think it applies to most, if not all, uses of language. And I would suggest uh, that, that this is because we're immersed in language. Language is immersive for us. Most of our thoughts are not simply conveyed in language. They're already instantiations of language. Think about what I mean by that. I have an experience, let's say, of love, and I would like to think that love is this wonderful, direct, immediate experience that I might or might not try to convey through the medium of language or gesture. It doesn't have to be, it, language here is not limited to the words. Any, any signifying gesture participates in language, right? So me stroking your cheek might be one way of signifying love. Why? Because it's just natural to stroke cheeks? I mean, it is true that primates do it as well. Maybe it's built into us evolutionarily in some way, but that doesn't mean that it's a direct signifier of love. It's still a mediation. It's still a language, a language of gesture, a language of, of petting someone else, right? And so what I'm suggesting then is that love is shot through with language, not English necessarily or French or whatever, but language as such, gesture, touching, and that these are conventional. They're not things that are just part of our way of being, we learn them. And that means that we learn love, not just the expression of love. We learn love through its expression because love is partly expression, right? After all, what is love if not an attempt to communicate with the beloved? Even unrequited love involves the equivalent of messages in a bottle that are never received. The message is still sent. So we, we learn the language of love just like we learn other languages, through immersion. So we are 
swimming always in language. And we have very few experiences, maybe none, that are not completely imbricated, completely folded in with language so that language and experience is inextricable for us. And again, maybe for primates too, even though they don't speak uh, a language in the way that we do, right? They have utterances, they, they speak through gesture, and maybe their thoughts too are fully folded up with their ways of communicating those thoughts. Now, this is an experience of the sublime, I'm suggesting, an enduring experience of it if one is alert to it. And that's what I think Burke's really up to here, right? That's the function of poetry for Burke, right? At least that's what I suggest Burke is suggesting, that poetry alerts us to the sublime force of our experience of everyday language. I'm going to say that again. Poetry alerts us to something that's going on all the time. It's not that poetry is just special language. Poetry is bringing out something that is special in all language, or that is particular to all language, which is that it is a sublime manner of immersion. Why sublime? Because we can't, it's boundless, right? You can keep asking me, what do you mean? What do you mean? What do you mean? And if I don't lose patience, I can keep trying to satisfy you. And as I try to satisfy you, my thoughts are going to expand. I'm going to make more and more connections. Right? My thought isn't going to stay the same unless I'm not much of a thinker or much of an explainer. We don't think someone is a good explainer if they just say the same thing in the same words over and over again. That person is an authoritarian, perhaps, or not very creative. When we ask someone to say it again, to say it in other words, explain it, we're asking them to use other words. And that will bring in other thoughts, and thoughts will continue to expand in that manner. Now, notice... This is quite different from Burke's program statement when it comes to the sublime. Even when I read a description of hell in Milton and I'm deeply disturbed by it, maybe even disturbed by it, I don't have that experience of pleasurable terror like I might when I'm peering down the abyss from a mountaintop or when I confront the awesome power of a tornado from a just safe enough distance. So that means the program statement doesn't cover it all. That immersion in obscurity... And remember Burke's obsession with darkness, right? Immersion in obscurity can involve something other than terror and yet still be sublime, right? It can be terrifying, but it need not be to be sublime. And Burke already acknowledges that with this discussion of, of language. Now, I think Kant does something similar when he's talking about the sublime, and remember he gives us, he says that the sublime really only uh, applies to nature, and then he proceeds to give us two examples from man-made art, right? And one was the pyramids, and the other was St. Peter's. And he says that when you enter St. Saint Pe Peter's in, in Rome, actually at Vatican City, right, that, that he says, um, quote, that this is what Kant writes, he says, quote, for there is here a feeling of the inadequacy of his imagination, the person entering in, for presenting the ideas of a whole, wherein the imagination reaches its maximum, and in striving to surpass it, sinks back into itself, by which, however, a kind of emotional satisfaction is produced, end quote. So notice that, right? The imagination reaches beyond its own limits. It reaches beyond what it can do. And so does reason. We talked about this in the last episode. It tries to do, both reason and imagination are trying to do more than they can do. They come into conflict with each other by both striving to go beyond their bounds. So it's not that harmonious matching up of imagination and understanding like it is with beauty. The sublime causes a certain amount of conflict, a certain amount of disturbance. 
sets the mind to working beyond its capacity. It's pushing at the limits, right? And that what happens then, according to, to Kant in this example, is that one, when, the, when the imagination is it's pushing against the maximum there, it's pushing against its limits, striving to surpass those limits, then the, the, the imagination sinks back into itself. And that's what I'm interested in. Because that's what I think is happening with language too, right? We, we realize that there's no limit. We can keep saying, we can keep finding other ways of saying things, more analogies, and other thoughts will creep in. And the idea that we're working with expands and expands and expands, and it doesn't stay limited. And yet somehow we're doing all this. And we think we might feel inadequate in relation to it, right? I can't keep up with all these thoughts. But we're the ones having all these thoughts. And then we get this kind of calm that we can sink back into, right? And that's what I think Kant is partly describing here. It's what we might call the immersive or the numbing sublime. And I'm going to talk about those in, in, in I'm going to talk about them as though they're separate things at times and as though they're together at times, because I think they're related. I don't think you, that the immersive always has to be numbing, um, depending on what it means by numbing. And let's explore that quickly now and then in the following segments. For Burke... The sublime is caused by the experience of near terror and produces what he calls astonishment, right? And that's, he defines that as, quote, a state of the soul in which all of its motions are suspended, end quote. Kant defines the sublime as an experience that produces, quote, a feeling of a momentary checking of the vital powers and a consequent stronger outflow of them, end quote. So both of them depict the sublime experience as involving being brought to a standstill. And Kant, at least, and maybe Burke too, has it that there is then a stronger spur to some kind of outflow of a vital power. So a feeling of constriction and smallness is replaced by a feeling of liberation, expansion. Our repulsion from the greatness of the infinite is followed by a feeling of commensurateness with infinity. Now, I see Kant's thesis not as though the checking of the vital powers then results in an outflow of the same quality of those vital powers. Rather, I see it as a standstill of one kind of experience of our vitality, and that that is replaced by the outflow of another kind, a different kind, different in quality altogether. That is, our egocentric, quotidian sense of being alive is replaced by a cosmic, decentered notion of our extended being, the way in which we extend out into the universe, that, we, that feeling that we are commensurate with the universe, a kind of Zen state, to draw one obvious analogy. And this maps on, back onto the strange relation of the sublime to fear or terror in Kant, right? There's a passage, another passage I want to read to you briefly, and that's this, quote, we can regard an object as fearful without being afraid of it. That is, if we judge of it in such a way that we merely think a case in which we would wish to resist it, and yet in which all resistance would be altogether vain. Thus, the virtuous man fears God without being afraid of him, because to wish to resist him and his commandments, he thinks, is a case that he need not apprehend. And he is in italics, right? So he need not worry about, about resisting God, but maybe someone else does. But, and now back to Kant, but in every such case that he thinks as not impossible, he cognizes him as fearful, right? So 
notice what's going on here, right? The virtuous man recognizes God as fearful, but doesn't necessarily fear God because he's not in bad standing with God. Someone else might be, but he's not. The person who really thinks about the tornado, and, he, and you don't even have to be that close to it, to really think about the destruction that it can, it can cause, the awesome power of it. You recognize the tornado as fearful, but you yourself need not be afraid of it. When I'm reading Milton, and I'm reading the awesome power of, of hell, the description of the awesome power of hell, and I'm really imagining it, I can perhaps have a sense of how fearful it is, but not for me. I'm sitting in my chair reading a book. Real terror gets transposed onto acceptance. What was terror or could be terror is left behind. The thing, God, the ghetto, the tornado is recognized as potentially fearful, but not necessarily so. Fearful for, perhaps for somebody, but not for the one having the sublime experience. And this leads to what I am terming the immersive or the numbing sublime. After all, one common response to terror or fear is to become numbed. Now, in the negative sense, this can lead to catatonia. I just break down. I don't, I don't want to feel anything anymore. I'm so afraid, I just shut down. And so nothing scares me anymore because I barely notice anything anymore. That's catatonia. But in a positive sense, this notion of being numbed can lead to what Sigmund Freud calls sublimation. And I don't think there's any accident that the sublime and sublimation sound so close together. And let's indulge in just a little bit of etymology here. The sublime comes from sub in Latin, sub up to, and, and uh, limus, right? The, the, the threshold, so, uh, or limit. So in Latin, the notion of the sublime is coming up to the limit. Right, coming up to uh, to to a point of a limit, and su to sublimate, right, comes from sublimare, which is raised up, raised up to a higher status. So notice that if I think about sublimation, the Freudian concept of sublimation, and to define this, I guess I didn't define it yet. Uh, very quickly, the notion of sublimation in Freud is that we take all of our our negative energy or our sexual energy, things that, that are socially frowned upon, right? Uh, me going around and expressing myself sexually all the time in public would be frowned upon, right? But I take that sexual energy, that pent-up sexual energy, and I channel it into something else. I channel it into artistic achievement or even achievement in the business world or whatever. It doesn't matter. I channel it into something socially acceptable. That's sublimation. I've taken uh, this energy that I have, which might be anger, it might be sexual frustration, it could be all sorts of things that I'm not supposed to express, and I sublimate it, right? I, I focus it, I, I channel it into something else. And so what I'm doing with my little bit of etymology here is I'm saying that, I'm, that what the sublime does is it brings me up to a limit, recognition of a limit. And sublimation is trying to go beyond that limit. And we can see that this is already implied in, in Kant and what he has to say about the sublime, right? So in the next two segments, we're going to explore this idea of another kind of sublime, a kind of numbing sublime, because that's what I'm suggesting sublimation is. It's a positive numbing sublime, that what we're doing is we're numbing part of our desire in order to channel it somewhere else, Right? We're numbing our sexual desire or our desire for violence and anger, and we're channeling it in something positive. 
and so and the other idea of the of the numbing aspect is this immersion, right? When we're immersed in in the the ocean and we're just floating along with the ocean, we feel the immensity of it. And we know that it's dangerous. We know we can drown. But we're floating on, we feel at one with it. We feel at peace. We're riding within it. And our sense of ourself extends. That's that Zen feeling of extending out that we are not just our egocentric self, but we extend out to the limits of the universe. And there's something fascinating about that. And I would suggest there's something sublime about it. And it's articulated not in gangster rap. That, that's closer, perhaps, to the sublimest terror, or at least that's what Crims would have us believe in. I think he's probably right about that. But when we look at the work of DJ Screw in the second segment and then Cloud Rap in the third segment, I think we're going to see this other notion of the sublime, an immersive or numbing sublime. Let's turn to that. of course. The main centers of activity when it comes to hip-hop production were New York and then the newly emergent L.A. scene. So you had the East Coast and the West Coast, and they were in the midst of a feud as to which was the more important contributor to current hip-hop uh, production. In the midst of this, some one group was caught in the center. Actually, it's more than one group, right? A whole swath of the country, and that's the South. The mid-90s are important in hip-hop history in part because of the emergence of Southern hip-hop. A pivotal moment here 
was the 1995 Source Awards ceremony. And this was the height, really, of the East-West Coast feud, right? And it had been uh, sort of goaded on by various hip-hop-related magazines, right, that had really promoted and, and, and fostered this sense of contention because contention sells copies, right? That particular ceremony of the Source Awards included the provocation of Suge Knight toward Puff Daddy, Right where he says something along the lines of, "If you if you want a, a producer who doesn't try to get up all on your songs and get up all in your videos, come see me at death row." Right, obviously calling out Puff Daddy. In the midst of all this contention between the East Coast and the West Coast, the Atlanta duo Outcast had just won an award for best new artist. And they go up to accept their award and they're booed on the stage. Because if there was one thing that the East Coast and the West Coast could agree about is that they were the only two contenders for king of hip-hop or, 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 or royalty of hip-hop. So Andre, the, one of the, the uh, members of Outkast, proclaimed into the uh, microphone, quote, It's like this, though. I'm tired of them closed-minded folks. It's like we got a demo tape, but nobody want to hear it. But it's like this. The South got something to say. End quote. This was considered a galvanizing moment for Southern hip-hop. In essence, it formed a third coast, right? You had the East Coast, the West Coast, now you had the Southern Coast. And this was soon going to be on an equal footing with the other two. And for a short while, really, it surpassed the other two. From 2002 to 2004, it really dominated the genre of hip-hop with respect to sales, right? In 2002, Southern hip-hop accounted for roughly 60% of hip-hop sales. Now, of course, Southern hip-hop wasn't just one place. It wasn't just Atlanta. There were various sites of uh, production, right? The so-called Southern Network of five cities, Atlanta, New Orleans, Houston, Memphis, and Miami. And Houston's what's of concern for our interests here. Because in Houston, a lot of the production centered around a uh, mixtape DJ named DJ Screw. Robert Earl Davis Jr., better known as DJ Screw, was based in Houston, and he created what is known as the chopped and screwed sound on his mixtapes. The screwed part is the part that really grabs people's attention first, right? What he often did was he took songs from other artists, like any mixtape DJ does, right? Many from the East or the West Coast, and so not just uh, Southern artists. A lot, of, a lot of the tracks are from East or West Coast artists. And he slows them down considerably. That's the screwing uh, part of it, right? And he sometimes layered them with other songs, which may or may not have been in tune with each other, and so therefore may or may not have coincided with Crims's focus when it comes to the hip-hop sublime. It certainly seems like it would be um, commensurate with, with Crims's ideas, and we'll get back to this in a moment. And then he would submit them to other processes, right? For instance, chopping them. So the other part of the chopped and screwed sound is, of course, chopping them. And what he did there is he'd have two uh, on his turntable, right? You have the two turntables, and you have the same record on either side, and you line it up in such a way that one is just slightly off from the other. And so when you chop uh, the records, you're, you're going between them. You're alternating between the two records, playing the same track, right, on the two different turntables. And what you do is you create a kind of stuttering, repetitive effect, because the idea is they're just slightly misaligned. So if there's a word on one, 
right? Then you bounce over to the other and, and you get to that same word on the other. But of course, the other record, the first record, record A, is still playing. So by the time you get back to it, you've skipped a word or two, right? And so basically what you're doing is creating this almost word salad uh, type technique, right? Um, where the language, something that had made sense, something that was constructed out of sentences that, that made sense, that were communicating something, are now being chopped up in such a way that they no longer quite make sense. We'll come back to this in a moment. He also subjected the, the um, tracks to other techniques, right? The typical ones um, for hip-hop DJs, although perhaps used sometimes in atypical ways. Uh, for instance, scratching, um, pushing the record back and forth to make that, that sound, that characteristic scratching sound that uh, DJs have used at least since Grandmaster Flash and, and uh, Grand Wizard Theodore. And the other is a backspinning technique that goes back at least to, cool, to DJ Herc, right? Um, cool Herc. But, the, but where um, Herc tended to use the backspinning to isolate a passage and then create a, a repetition of that passage, um, DJ Screw will often backspin either for, for special effects or even backspin in much a much larger sense. To, instead of just getting a four-measure or eight-measure phrase that then get, he gets to repeat over and over again in the manner of, of Cole Herc, uh, he will isolate either um, phrases that don't necessarily line up in, in clear metrical units um, or he'll play with those metrical units or he'll take very small phrases, as we'll see in a moment, or very large sections of music. Now, the approach, the screwing approach, creates a kind of musical drawl. It drags out the language, right? Because when you slow something down, it's not, it, it drops in pitch, obviously, but it also creates, it, or it brings to your attention aspects of language that you might not notice otherwise. Notice how I elongated the word when I was trying to find the right word. It brings, right, and I elongated it. If we were to slow that down, that would become exaggerated to the point that it loses its sense. We, we clean up language a lot when we're listening to it, right? I'm not reading from a script right now. Right, And so when I'm looking for my words and you're listening uh, to me looking for those words and I say things like, oh, or I draw out certain words, you fix that for me, thankfully, right? Because you're listening carefully and you know what I'm trying to say or you gather what I'm trying to say. You're following the chain of reasoning. And so you clean up little things like slight mispronunciations or the ways that I, I draw out certain syllables or whatever. Some of those are artifacts of my accent. Some of those are just me looking for the right word. Some of them are just, you know, I didn't swallow at the right time, whatever. All of that gets kind of worked out as you're listening to me at a normal pace. But if you were to slow it down, all of those slight misgivings, all of those slight uh, mistakes, if you want to call them mistakes, those imperfections of my delivery become drawn out. They become exaggerated. And in fact, other things that didn't seem like imperfections will show up as kind of imperfections. The pitch will drag a bit, right? And this is what happens with screws, screwing technique. The wrapping becomes a kind of draw and, the, and it creates this overall laid back feeling, but a defamiliarized sound. What did make sense no longer makes sense in the same way. 
Now, at the time, Houston youth culture was focused on cars. That's a necessity in a stretched out city like Houston. And Houston was one of the largest, most populous cities uh, in the U.S., right? You have uh, New York, L.A., Houston. And yet Houston didn't have the same notoriety at this time in the, in the mid-90s uh, for hip-hop as the other two. And so, as, as Matt Carter puts it in his, his dissertation where he explores the music of uh, DJ Screw, Houston had a kind of identity crisis going on, Houston hip-hop culture. On the one hand, it wanted to belong to the same kind of um, circuit of meaning and production as New York and L.A. And as you can see in DJ Screw's um, taking of these tracks from New York and L.A. And, and reworking them, he's paying homage to them. He's, he's feeling that he's part of that language. But he deforms the language. And you might think of it as being representative of car culture, right? The stretched out quality of the city finds a, an analogy in the stretched out quality of the music. And also, of course, in the culture in the 90s in, in Houston, there was a widespread use of lean, right? Also known as purple drank or scissorp. And this was made by combining prescription-grade cough syrup with a soft drink, sometimes with hard candy, right? And some critics thought that lean use explained the chopped and screwed technique. Because after all, what's lean going to do? What's that kind of drug use going to do? It's going to stretch out your sense of, of time and your sense of speech and so on. Think of what happens when people are inebriated. Now, I want us to think about this a bit, right? Uh, whether it's alcohol or, or marijuana or lean, uh, they all have differing effects, of course, but they all share this kind of, uh, they create a slurring of the speech, right? And they all, but they don't usually, at least for most people, they don't create a shutdown of speech, right? That's sort of the caricature of the drunk in a bar who's there uh, after hours and that the other patrons are listening to in an amused or bemused manner because the, the drunkard is driven on all right, let's not call him a drunkard. The drunk person, the person in a state of inebriation, is drawn on to a kind of volubility. They want to speak. In fact, speech seems very urgent to them all of a sudden. Maybe not all the time. I'm not talking about every instance of someone being inebriated. But you've had this experience, I'm assuming. I certainly have. I've been on both ends of it. Where you feel spurred on to speech. And yet you don't quite have the mastery of it anymore. You can't keep your train of thought the way you usually can. But that doesn't stop you. In fact, in a way, what happens uh, is language opens up for you, right? That those things that would have been asides in normal speech become whole new lands to explore. And that can be very hard for your interlocutors to follow. And yet it seems very urgent to you. And if you pay attention as an interlocutor, especially if you were also at least somewhat inebriated, that can be, those could be some of the most fascinating conversations because they can go anywhere. Any door leads to a new enchanted land. Any aside can become a new topic for exploration. Now, Screw argued that that's not what he was after with this, that it wasn't about lean culture, that he wasn't always high when he did these records, right? Although he was a lean user and, and indeed died from complications associated with that, the use of that drug. But he claims that that's not what he was after. It, wasn't, it certainly wasn't a representation of it, and it wasn't, it wasn't simply a result of it, that this was an artistic endeavor. And I take him at his word, right, to borrow a phrase that we used 
in the last segment. I take him at his word. I'm not saying that he's wrong. And yet I do see an analogy here. I don't want to make a one-to-one relationship. I think that would be the wrong tack to take, right? But I do see an analogy between a state of inebriation and the state of listening to a screw tape. Because it's that same sense of opening up possibility. Possibilities with respect to language, possibilities with respect to aesthetics when it comes to the screw tape, right? And that we're immersed in this moment. When we're in a good conversation in a state of inebriation, it doesn't have to be a state of inebriation, of course. When we're in a really good conversation where we're letting language open up in the ways that it can, where we feel ourselves immersed into it, immersed in it rather, and that we realize that we can never say enough, that we can always be asked, what do you mean by that? And then we'll go on and our meaning will expand and expand on into infinity. There are no boundaries and there's no form to the conversation. It just wends its way wherever it goes. We can perhaps track a form afterwards, but who would do that? Why would you do that? You're immersed in it. There's no form. There's this feeling of formlessness and boundlessness. And that's the sublime, of course, right? And when we're immersed in language in that way, we feel that it, can, it opens up to endless possibility. And then it feels somewhat defamiliarized. It's still language, right? It's still language functioning more or less the way that it functions, but it doesn't feel as concrete. It feels slippery. And then we start to think that maybe that's what language is all the time. And then we try to moor it in various ways. We try to anchor it in various ways. But language itself, thought itself, wants to keep expanding, wants to keep going on. And then we feel that, and this happens, right, when we're inebriated or when we're in a good uh, discussion with a friend or when we're in love, we feel that the boundaries of the self fall away and we expand, we become bigger than we are or we become what we were all along, depending on your point of view. And so the familiar becomes defamiliarized. Words that used to make sense are turned into sound property, in, in, in Screw's approach into a kind of word salad, like I said, almost like Dada approach to poetry, where you just throw words together, didn't matter, randomly, by chance, right? And you'd see what would come out, words and sounds. And it's no longer about sense, so much as it is about sound. And semantic meaning is converted into sonic meaning, right? Semantic meaning, saying that the word dog means this furry creature. But listen to the way that I say dog, as opposed to someone else that says dog or whatever. It doesn't matter. There's a musical quality to it. And that musical quality isn't just an affect, I don't think. I think it's part of how language works for us. Certain people you know favor certain words over others, partly because of the way they say those words. That has a, uh, an impact on their meaning and their use. Now, let's take a, a concrete example, right, that, that um, Matt talks about in his, his dissertation, and I'm going to draw on that here, Matt Carter's dissertation on DJ Screw. First of all, Matt makes a, an interesting criticism that's not the one that I already broached in the last segment of Crim's and the, the hip-hop sublime, right? He says that, that there's a sort of form problem in Crim's approach to the sublime, because after all, the sublime is about formlessness. But what happens in a gangster rap song? There's usually a verse, chorus, verse, chorus kind of thing, maybe a break in there. In other words, it has your pretty typical form of a pop song. And so there might be a, um, 
allusion to the sublime with respect to the content. But the song itself, as such, is not sublime. It might allude to the sublime. Maybe the, the use of the tracks has a sublime effect, but it's not itself sublime. It's a, it's a pretty clear form, right? A form that we all have a grasp on. But notice how Screw's approach to the sublime deforms form. When you stretch something out like that, yeah, you can keep track of verse, chorus, verse, chorus, but the verses feel so long. They don't feel like they're leading to something else. You feel like you're suspended, immersed in them. What had been a trekking, to, to borrow uh, the dichotomy I used in the prog rock episodes, right, where I said that, that music can be, in one sense, can have two phenomenologies, uh, basically. The one can be a progressing, a trekking, a moving from one point to another. Uh, the other can be a kind of dwelling, you're staying within a certain atmosphere. And part of what Screw does, I would contend, is he takes what was trekking and what you still recognize, especially if you know that track from outside the world of Screw, that you recognize it as trekking, and yet here it feels like immersion. It feels like dwelling. And that's what I'm trying to argue happens with language, too. Language often feels like trekking. I'm telling you, get me a soda, and I expect you to get me a soda. But if I stretch that out and I just listen to the sounds of the words, get me a soda, and I manipulate it so it no longer means anything, I'm just listening to those sounds, I'm dwelling in the language. I'm dwelling in its possibilities. It's not directed in the same way anymore. And the, the mixtape, It's a Dirty World, is a good example of that. The first 37 or so minutes, roughly the first 40 minutes, are a kind of continuous move from song to song. All of them screwed, all of them stretched out, slowed down in this way. And it starts with a pretty just screwed version of Hot Boys' uh, Dirty World, right? Hence the name of the mixtape itself. And this goes on for quite a while, undisturbed. We hear most of the verses, most of the rappers from the Hot Boys, we hear them undisturbed, just slowed down. But he does nothing else to it. There's no, there's no layering, there's no um, scratching, there's no backspinning. But then we get to BJ's, BG's verse, rather. BG's verse, right, from, from the Hot Boys. And Screw mixes in, then, a song by Big Steve called Ghetto Love. Now, this is, happens around the five-minute mark, if you can get your hands on, on this mixtape. That means these are in two different keys. One, in, at least in this instantiation, is in G-sharp minor, the other is in C minor, right? And he's, those, those are keys that are, that are quite distant uh, from each other in some ways. Now, of course, there are some overlaps. Uh, there are ways in which you might see it as commensurate. C minor, of course, has the pitch A flat, which is just... Uh, and harmonically related to G sharp. But there are also going to be plenty of pitches that are going to come into conflict, that grate against each other. And Screw makes no real effort that I can hear to make them line up rhythmically either. Now, don't get me wrong, other DJs do this. We've heard this when we go to restaurants or, or clubs that have DJs where you mix one track that doesn't really go with another. With another, Just for a moment, there's a, this overlap and it gives you this, this little moment of dizziness and then clarity, right? A moment of obscurity and then clarity. It's a little bit of a, a frisson, right? A little, a little bit of friction in your soul. That kind of, it's a little thrill. But in Screw's language, where you've, not, you've stretched it out, you allow that overlap to continue going on longer, 
It gives you this calming but slightly sickening feeling, not unlike drug use, not unlike inebriation. It goes on long enough that you kind of accept it as this is the way it is. And it doesn't feel like the hip-hop sublime, in part because it's not a looping set of uh, incongruent samples, the way that Crims has us thinking of the gangster rap hip-hop sublime. This is different. This is a deeper sense of immersion. It's not repetition in the way of the Crimsian hip-hop sublime, where you're accepting it through repetition. You're accepting this through duration, by enduring it. Now, there's a part of um, Ghetto Love that has this two-beat anticipatory figure, right? That includes this repeated second, 16th note chime sound. And then there's a total silence, meaning everything drops dead, everything's silent. And it's anticipatory. It, it happens um, uh, four times, right? Uh, right before the, the first verse for Big Steve's Ghetto Love. And so you feel it as, right, imagine just da-da-da, and then a stop, a, a pause. And you're waiting for something to fill that gap. So it gives you this sense of anticipation. It has a function. What Screw does with that is first he plays it just two times, not four times, just two times. But instead of going to the verse, he backspins to get to the, back to the instrumental. And we hear the instrumental again. So this thing that had been used as transitional and anticipatory of the arriving of the rapping now just loops back. Then... The groove goes on for, for a bit, and then we hear an anticipatory figure again. But now, instead of it being two times, or instead of it being four times, it goes 16 times. And that kind of stuttering effect, and by the way, he doesn't get every backspinning of that figure quite right, and so it feels even more odd when you actually hear it, right? Um, and this goes on for, for 16 times, and it makes it feel like you're no longer anticipating anything. The anticipation kind of wears away, right? Just like in a, like I said, in an inebriated state or a really good involving conversation, the anticipation of getting to a goal just kind of fades away. And you're just immersed. You're just in the moment with somebody, as Matt describes it, quote, a new configuration appears as a standalone delirium-inducing sonic object, right? I like that image, the delirium-inducing sonic object, a standalone delirium-inducing sonic object. It doesn't have to go anywhere. It's not pointing anymore. It's not indexical, right? We use our index finger to point, so therefore indexical means something that's pointing. And like like a, a dominant seventh chord points to where it wants to resolve, and an anticipatory figure is pointing toward what it anticipates. But here it no longer can do that. And when, when Screw brings that back again, right, because once again he goes into some um, the instrumental groove, when he brings it back again, he does play it normatively. He plays it four times and it goes into the verse. But by this point, we don't trust the anticipatory figure anymore. In fact, I don't think it's a matter of trusting or not trusting. We have no faith because faith isn't a place of value anymore in this music. Everything is accepted. Everything is as it is. Again, that analogy to the almost zen-like. Around 13 minutes and 40 seconds into the mixtape, we get that figure again, and it's played 24 times, right? Eroding it entirely of any, any kind of sense of having to go anywhere. And then around 17 minutes and 30 seconds into it, Ghetto Love is overlapped with Spice One's East Bay Gangster Reggae, that track, right? And again, you get this dizzying effect. 
the it's a it's a bizarre effect. I, I really find it like almost an emblem of nausea, but not a disturbing nausea. That kind of numbing sensation you get when you're inebriated. Where you are, you've literally poisoned yourself. That's what inebriation is. And yet you don't feel it as though you're dying exactly. You don't feel it as as a loss. You feel it as a gain, at least when it's going well. You feel it as an expansion. And to me, that's a big part of what's going on with, with Screw. One of my favorite moments is toward the end of this extended bit. Right? We're roughly uh, 31 um, to 32 minutes into the thing, right? Um, and and he overlaps uh, the Spice One track with Luna's I Got Five on it. And then uh, you hear G- DJ Screw, right? So once again, you get this kind of nausea-inducing overlap. And it's a really great one to listen to. Get your hands on this this mixtape if you don't own it already. Um, but at any rate, it's a great moment. Again, this extended overlap. And Screw says uh, over it, he says, uh, you know what I'm saying? I got five on it. In other words, he's introducing it. And it's stretched out, of course, because he, he recorded this at normal speed, and then he stretches the whole thing out. So it's very slow. You know what I'm saying? I got five on it. But the point is, you don't know what's being said any longer. What Screw does is he introduces you to the not knowing of language, the exploratory immersion of language. Now, a fallout of all this is what we might call cloud rap, and we'll see that there are direct ties from um, DJ Screw to cloud rap, and that's what we'll turn to next. rap isn't exactly a style as a, a sort of school 
of, of, of approach to hip hop. It's not a movement in any strong sense, or at least not not a movement in the way that, say, I don't know, gangster rap might be thought of, right? It's a more or less coherent group of people who are approaching things with their own approaches, their own styles, but but with a sort of coherent agenda, or at least one that you can get your mind around. Cloud rap is, is really a, a set of production techniques. And, and again, it's an issue that involves the sublime. And so it's not always about uh, production techniques that can be applied and say, oh, well, I'm a cloud rap producer and therefore I do these things. It's partly uh, the way that we might respond to a kind of use of samples, right? It's a subgenre ultimately of, of Southern rap and trap, although many of the progenitors of the style are from California or other non-Southern states. And it seems to have drawn, drawn its energy out of the uh, lo-fi uh, approach to um, hip-hop that starts at the, with the new century, right? This idea of chill-hop or, or lo-fi hip-hop that's very popular. A lot of uh, people use it to study and so on. You can see these memes when you go to the various YouTube channels that have uh, chill hop or, or lo-fi hip-hop. They'll have a, a picture of somebody studying, right? And the idea is that this is music that, that is not going to draw your attention entirely to it. It's going to put you in a relaxed, expanded, calm state. And you can see where we're going with this, this immersive sublime. Now, I, of course, we have to defend the notion of it as being sublime. The, the notion of immersion or almost numbing uh, by itself doesn't necessarily do it, right? The, the sub-portion uh, of, of lo-fi hip-hop that's known as, as cloud rap relies upon hazy production, right? This sort of murky, obscure set of sounds. Um, a lot of the uh, samples are vocal samples, Right? These sort of chant-like vocal samples. Um, and they also sometimes employ distorted and psychedelic samples and draw on that chopped and screwed sound of, uh, of, of DJ Screw. One of the, uh, there are various early progenitors of this. Uh, and some people think of Mad Villainy, the, the, the Mad Villain uh, album, uh, MF Doom and, and Mad Lib, right? Their collaboration, one of the finest albums in all of hip-hop history. Some people think of that as a kind of touchstone for some of this because of some of the um, vocal um, samples and, and some of the sort of murky use of, of samples. Other people point toward the group, this rather short-lived group, Cloud Dead, right? Uh, who released two, I think, phenomenal albums and then uh, sort of disappeared from the scene, um, but they drew heavily on electronica and psychedelia and glitch music, right, the, the malfunctioning of various devices as well as indie rock, and so they, they, uh, they often used um, this more atmospheric use of vocal samples and so on that has this kind of hazy, psychedelia-tinged feeling to it. A lot of people also think of the beginning of, of the cloud rap genre as involving a Houston musician that goes by the moniker of Viper the Rapper, right? He's extremely prolific. Uh, in one year, I don't remember if it was 2014 or what, but in one year he put out a, an album 
nearly every day. Not a song every day, right? I know there are those song a day challenges. He put out an album every day. Now, uh, temper your expectations here a bit. Some of the albums were remixes. Some of them uh, were revamped re, um, versions of songs that he worked on before. Uh, but still, by any measure, an album a day for an entire year is a pretty mean feat, right? Uh, not mean, but opposite of mean, a pretty, a pretty outlandish feat. No mean feat is the uh, expression I guess I was looking for. He has, uh, at this point, he has well over 1,500 albums uh, that you can find on Spotify and, and so on. Um, and I don't know the exact count. Some people think of him as more or less uh, along the lines of an outsider artist, right? Someone who's, who's working outside of the... Um, economic model of popular music, who's a little off kilter, uh, right? He, he maybe not entirely, um, uh, uh, maybe it's not entirely about skill so much as just this sort of uh, random enthusiasm. And yet I think, and he even admits that his rapping is, is subpar, that he doesn't focus as much on that as the production. And his productions, I think, are fascinating, they're really interesting. A lot of it is original music. A lot of it is not sample-based, right? But these murky atmospheric sounds that are really quite bizarre and, and quite lo-fi, right? He's not using the, the clearest um, recording technology here. The ideas for that murky sound to be part of the aesthetic. And of course, perhaps the most famous um, uh, producer of beats to... to uh, engage in what is called and really develop the style that's known as or, or non-style or, or uh, whatever you want to label it as of cloud rap is, is Clams Casino, right? Um, a DJ that was uh, working in, in New Jersey who uh, for a while just was contacting people on the internet, um, artists, various artists to try to get them to use his beats, right? And that's how he got one of his first major releases, which was I'm God, uh, a collaboration with the uh, rapper Lil B. Also extremely prolific, right? Another another very prolific artist. Another one who's also thought of as being somewhat of an outsider artist, outside of the mainstream and, and um, not as polished in some ways, not as professional in some ways. To some people, others would disagree with that label and, and I have no uh, horse in that race. Lil B is sometimes uh, credited with starting um, cloud rap as a distinct genre. And he's also credited with coining the term. And this tune, I'm God, that he, he developed with Clams Casino, I think is a, a major feat in, that, um, in the legacy of, of cloud rap. When, uh, you really should stop at this point and, and take a close listen to it, right? There, you'll find two versions. You'll find the instrumental version, which was just released on Spotify not very long ago at all uh, because of licensing rights. Uh, it couldn't be released before. It's just called I'm God, and it'll say Clams Casino and Imogen Heap, and that's because the samples were taken from the uh, Imogen Heap song Just For Now. And then, of course, you should listen to um, Lil B's version uh, also called I'm God, but with him rapping on it. Now, the uh, I'm, I'm going to now assume you're somewhat familiar uh, with, with it or that you will be after you hear my description and then you'll go hear it. But um, the interesting elements here of, of 
I'm God. And right now I'm really only interested in the instrumental track, right? You start off with a section from uh, the original song, from Imogen Heap's um, song from the 90s, uh, Just For Now which is more or less about getting together with your family at the holidays and feeling sort of discontent, uh, discontented uh, with the whole thing. Um, and you hear a good section, a stanza from it, right? But Clams Casino introduces it so that it sounds far away. It's, it's heavily filtered, and it sounds like it's in the distance, like it's coming from some hazy distance. Like somehow it's not quite real. So that you recognize, again, like we were talking about in the last episode, you recognize the denatured aspect of it the defamiliarized aspect of it, right? Um, That it is uh, degraded in some fashion. You're not hearing it in its purity. And yet, you're just hearing the song. He has, other than the filtering, he hasn't done anything to it, really, at this stage. When the beat enters, when the drum beat enters, uh, and he starts to manipulate the sample, that's when the music seems to pull up to the forefront. But in this very hazy manner, right? indicative of, of cloud rap. What I think is interesting here in his approach to the tune and, and why I think it's absolutely appropriate that he wound up agreeing to put Imogen Heap's name on it, right? That it really feels like a collaboration, not because she participated in what he did with it. I mean, she that, that makes it no more of a collaboration than any other uh, set of sample pieces, right? Uh, any other hip hop track that samples pieces. Uh, So, in other words, most hip-hop tracks. It feels collaborative because Clams Casino really enters into the sound world developed by Imogen Heap in that song, Just For Now. It doesn't feel like he's simply taking the track and pulling it into another genre. He's engaging in the genre and its possibilities. But what he's doing is he's removing it from communicative speech, from speech that we, we can recognize, right? You still hear the vocal aspect of it. You know that it's voices, and, and this is a track that is overlaid with a lot of Imogen Heap's, Imogen Heap's voices, right? So she's accompanying herself on all sorts of, of levels. But after that opening stanza where you can actually hear the words, how did you know it's what I've always wanted, could never have, have too many of these, will you quit kicking me under the table, I'm trying, will somebody make her shut up about it, can we settle down please, right? After that opening, you don't hear words that you can quite understand anymore. I mean, you can pick out the words, but they don't link up anymore. So the, the refrain, what I'm calling the refrain of Clem's Casino's um, uh, version here of his, of his track uh, goes, you hear, it's what, and then I think, right? It's what I think. Now, those are taken from two different lines from the original song. And when you hear them in the context of the Clams Casino track, it doesn't feel so much like speech that it's not, it's not like it sounds like it's what I think. It doesn't sound like that's what's being said. They just sound like these two utterances in the abyss. It's what I think right? And you hear their, their pitch and you hear their percussive aspect more than anything else. But notice this kind of, even if you do recognize the words, the kind of stuttering quality to it. It's what I think. And then you hear a sort of chorus of, of um, Imogen Heaps, all very heavily filtered, uh, that have a line from the original song, bite, tongue, deep breaths. But I, I had to look that up to know what it was, right? I don't, maybe some of you will hear it more clearly than I did, of course. But it gets um, washed out from from the filtering and from the the depth from which it seems to come. That's the refrain. The verses, what we might think of as the verses of this track, 
even though it's an instrumental track, right, are just ululation. They're just they're just melismas of the voice, the sort of soaring, melancholic sound that she produces that are uh, that are without words, right? Just utterances, melodic utterances. And the whole thing feels deeply personal. And it feels deeply personal in a way that seems to even transgress the boundaries of the Imogen Heap original of the song. Because that one's tied to words and you're like you're trying to figure out what, what's being said. That It's this somewhat unhappy reunion with one's family at a holiday or something along those lines if I'm understanding the lyrics correctly. Here you don't have that. It's just, it's what I think. Without stipulating what it is that's being thought without the thought necessarily going anywhere. It's immersive. And the overall repetition of the track, the overall haziness of the track, inspires a kind of numbing acceptance in my mind. Now, there are a couple things I want to say about that. First, uh, as a, a bit of levity, right? There's a moment in a Monty Python film, uh, the, the Meaning of Life, right? A film by them. Uh, where there's a, a couple of people that come to the door and they say, you know, we're here because you're a liver donor and, and we're here to take your liver. The guy's like, well, I'm alive. I'm still using it. Well, you won't be alive once we cut you open and, and take your liver, right? And uh, obviously absurdist humor, Monty Python, sort of the, their specialty, right? The wife runs into the kitchen and the guy comes in, one of the surgeons, hack, Saul in hand, he comes in and he says, you know, uh, do you mind if we take your liver? She goes, well, no, I don't want to, I don't want you to take my liver, right? Oh, what's the matter? You know, it doesn't, it just let us have it um, as long as we're here or whatever. And in order to convince her, he opens the refrigerator and out of the refrigerator comes this, this figure, right? Played by Eric Idle. And he introduces her to the immensity of the universe, Right? And what is that if not the mathematical sublime, the immensity, the unfathomable immensity of the universe? And then in the greater scheme of things, you are a tiny speck. Now at the end of this parade into her finitude, into her utter meaninglessness, a speck upon a speck upon a speck of dust, she's not upset. She's not terrified. She just says, all right, you can have my liver then. Right? This kind of numbing acceptance. Fear has been replaced by a kind of acceptance. The, the sublime of terror has been transmuted into a kind of sublimation, right? In this case, a comic one. But her energy, her, her concern has been focused elsewhere because of this experience of not just the immensity of the universe, I would argue, but this feeling that she's at one with it. And that her smallness is in one sense... Uh, terrifying, but in another sense, she connects to all things. And so therefore, her death is a, a trivial matter. This is done for comic effect in the film, but you can see how this might play out in the song. And this is where something kind of sad comes into to play here, right, with I'm God. Because there are two famous stories that go around the internet, one that's been verified and one that I don't think ever can be, about suicides uh, with respect to to the song, I'm God. The famous one is the one that can't be verified. It was a, um, a green text story, one of those stories that people put on social media where it's a line at a time, right? 
and he was talking about falling in love with uh, this girl and, and how great their relationship was, and then she cheated on him, and he couldn't get over it. And he, they first kissed to the song, I'm God, and he's listening to it as he's writing this, and he's um, ingesting drugs and, and uh, you know painkillers. And it ends that with the line, and I'm paraphrasing. I don't remember the exact line, but I, I was, uh, you guys, I was afraid of dying, and 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 speaking to you or, or whatever it is he says has uh, reassured me that I'm not alone. Um, and and take care or whatever, right? And the idea is that he probably has committed suicide after this. Now, whether or not it happened seems to matter less than the fact that it's such a a prevalent part of what this song has come to mean for many people on the internet. And if you look up I'm God uh, videos on YouTube, you'll see R.I.P. David Higgs, right? The, the guy, uh, the name that's associated with this story. And something similar went on during the pandemic with uh, lo-fi hip-hop in general, the various YouTube channels that, you, that um, deliver lo-fi hip-hop, right? have, of course, as all uh, most YouTube channels have, they have a comment section, and the comment section are filled with comments reaching out to other people for reassurance during this time of, uh, of isolation, of separation, of feeling like you're alone, a time of heightened depression, obviously. And I think it's significant. I mean, that could have gone on in any YouTube channel, but the fact that it's so prevalent in these lo-fi hip-hop channels that it, and that the the suicide stories, and there, there are suicide stories of people listening to plenty of other songs, but that they stick so, so tightly, two of these stories stick so tightly to this track, uh, I'm God by Clams Casino, I think it's significant. Because as I said in the first segment, there are two ways one can go with being numb. There's catatonia, there's not being able to deal with any of it anymore. And then there's sublimation, this idea of numbing myself to certain problems in order to channel my energy to, into solving other problems, into doing other things, into, into meeting my limits and, and, and moving beyond those limits. So we can either succumb to the limits and indeed withdraw further into ourselves within those limits, or we can try to transgress those limits, to push beyond them. What leads one to one and one to the other? I can't say. I don't think anyone really can. And it's a small step, right? There's that old saying, there's a small step from the ridiculous to the sublime. And I assume vice versa, the sublime to the ridiculous. And here we can see something similar, right? That on the one hand, I'm God, for some people, that, that track communicates a moment of desperation and, and that that would be the track that you listen to in that moment of desperation. And for others, it's this idea of an immersion in a kind of, uh, a kind of numbing safeness and expansion of the self, a way of being comforted by one's own decentered immensity, by one's connection to the infinite. Thank you for joining me for this episode of Sound Philosophy. I hope you enjoy what you heard. If you're interested in finding out more, please visit my website at chadwickjenkins.com 
or write me at cjenkinsmusicology, all one word, at gmail.com. cjenkinsmusicology at gmail.com. I hope to hear from you soon.